What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Business of Strength podcast. This week's guest is none other than world-class powerlifter turned strength entrepreneur, Matt Wenning. Matt is a prime example of someone who has turned their passion for strength and conditioning into a real profession and business. He's created Matt Wenning Strength and his gym, Ludus Magnus, in Columbus, Ohio. He's one of the top strength coaches in the country, sells his own brand of strength equipment, uh, and, and has you know gyms around the world outfitted with his own specialized equipment. He was a world champion powerlifter, a world record holder, and an amazing uh, backstory of how he transformed himself from a young kid who, who never really lifted weights into a world champion powerlifter. I'm excited for everybody to hear his story. Matt Matt's no-nonsense approach to creating his brand and creating his business, in, in his words, I just want to be the most badass dude around, is truly evident in what he says, and you're going to love it. If you want to learn how to transform your passion into a real profession, check out strengthentrepreneurs.com. Come to a two-day mentorship. We will absolutely help you transform your business from the inside out. Learn operations, business development, marketing and sales, human resources. Learn how to hire and develop great employees. That's strengthentrepreneurs.com. As always, this episode is brought to you by Varsity House Gym, a world leader in strength and conditioning Go to varsityhousegym.com. Here we go, everybody. Matt Wenning. Welcome to the business of strength powered by Varsity House Gym, the podcast for strength entrepreneurs. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the business of strength podcast. I'm here with powerlifting superstar turned strength entrepreneur, Matt Wenning. Matt Wenning is a uh, gym owner and world record holder. He has multiple businesses under his belt. He runs Wenning Strength. He is known for uh, training police, firemen, EMS. He's uh, you know an interesting fellow who's traveled around the country. He's uh, uh, the a strength and wellness coordinator for Washington Township Fire Department. He's a tactical athlete consultant. Uh, he's a badass vehicle ins- enthusiast. I know he's a big Harley guy, and he's got some really cool cars in his shop that he's working on all the time. And he's just a uh, you know he's really uh, a great fit for the business of strength, and he's a true testament to someone who turned his passion for powerlifting and strength and conditioning into a profession. Matt, welcome to the business of strength. Thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, man, not a problem. Great. So, Matt, so obviously, you know, our listeners are, are you know, business tuned and, and want to know, you know, how you turned your profession or how you turned your passion into a profession. So can you talk to us a little bit about your journey uh, into powerlifting? How'd you get into powerlifting? And, you know, where yeah. was the turning point as to, you know, where you decided, like, you know, this could be a real business. I could start turning this into a real profession. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in a fairly moderate to small size town and uh, um, started working out in seventh grade, uh, sixth grade summer to seventh grade for football. Um, I felt like my, my legs needed, uh, more conditioning and strength and size. Cause I was starting to get into full pad football and, uh, due to my, um, lower body injuries as a child from getting hit by a car, my legs were, um, always behind my upper body. So when I got out of casts at seven years old, the only thing that didn't hurt to do was swimming. So I, became a pretty decent swimmer um as a kid and uh so my upper body my lats and my shoulders were always uh pretty conditioned and pretty strong um and uh so going into seventh grade football um, i started working out with weights didn't know what the hell i was doing uh walked into a local ymca and there were a guy that was uh named tim smith that was super strong dude 
Um, he was a 500 pound raw bencher at 185 pounds of body weight. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, he saw me and he thought I was like 16 and I was only like 12 and a half, 13. And he's like, he's like, man, you'd be a really good lifter if you started uh, working out really hard. And I was just thinking, wow, that'd be cool. So he, he kind of needed a new training partner and I was a young kid <laughs> that wasn't going to ask any questions cause he was 10 times stronger than me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it started there and, uh, started training hard in a couple of years was doing some pretty big numbers and started taking all the teenage state records. And, uh, by the time I was 18, I was already doing national caliber meets. And, uh, I had a, a family friend that had, uh, connections with the Indianapolis Colts. And, um, he was a, he was a math whiz and, uh, became a, an accountant for the Colts. And, coming from a small town, we didn't have a strength coach at our high school. This is the early mid nineties. Um, we didn't have a, uh, a strength coach at the high school. And the only strength coach in town was, uh, was the guy Wade Russell that worked for a ball state, which I did not know at the time. Right. Okay. And, uh, so I drive down to Indianapolis because this guy works for the Colts, my friend. And he's like, well, we got a weight training guy that does stuff with the Colts. I'm like, man, that'd be a cool job. Yeah. Well, yeah. Being a young high school kid i don't fucking realize that that's gonna entail me going to school for <laughs> six six years out of high out of high school you know sure, sure. i probably barely know what a fucking master's degree was <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean I, I think at 17 you don't really realize that at least i didn't now where did you actually grow up man what town like where are you I grew from? up in muncie indiana which is a little bit north of indianapolis okay okay uh, so not about about 45 minutes away from the Colts compound. Okay. So um, I drive down there and I'm all excited because I think I can just be a really strong meathead and I can tell all these pro football guys how to lift weights and that just sounds like the best job in the world. <laughs> so I, I get down there and the head strength coach is a guy named John Torrey and I think he actually still is there. Yeah. And um, he sits down and looks at me and talks to me for a minute and he's like, well, "What are you uh, What are you looking to do?" And I was like, "Well, I want your job." <laughs> kind of laughs at me and he goes oh is that right and i was like yeah he's like you know i i like lifting weights and i like doing this and that with with in the gym and he's like well being a strength coach for a pro team is a lot more than just being uh you know being a strong guy and right so talking you know not talking down to me but just pretty much telling me the ropes he's like if you want a job like this you're gonna have to have a master's degree you're gonna have to go to school you know you're gonna have to do this and that i'm just coming at him as an 18 year old with a over 400 pound bench press, and you know i own the world you know right you're just thinking hey are we just gonna lift weights that's it <laughs> yeah exactly so uh he asked me where i'm from because he doesn't know i'm from the state he mm -hmm. just knows i showed up and i'm like well i'm from muncie indiana he goes oh well ball state's up there and i'm like yeah that's that's my hometown he goes he goes that's one of the best uh colleges for strength conditioning and exercise science i didn't even know yeah and he's like you know dr kramer was there dr bullock uh Dr. Newton, all my professors were there that I didn't know at the time. He goes, he goes, you need to go up there and enroll in school and you need to do really well and you need to get into a graduate program. And then maybe one day you'd be able to have a job like mine. So I finally have the, uh, you know, the, the guidance and the way to go. Right. So I start just keep training hard and I'm going to school and then Dr. Kramer and all those guys start taking a vested interest in me because I'm one of the brighter kids in the class, maybe not as far as books go, but as far as applied knowledge. And just being super strong. So I start helping yeah. him in the lab. And uh, they introduced me to Wade Russell, the head strength coach there. He played yeah. for the Dolphins and the Bengals. Yeah, he's and, still there, uh, I think, Wade. Isn't he still there? Uh, no, he works for a big high school now. Oh, okay. He, he moved to a high school. So he, yeah, he, he, was there for, he was there for a million school. years. 
Yeah, he was there from 82 to 2006. Yeah, yeah. So he was one of the first strength coaches in the MAC. And uh, he got a big, big job at a big high school. It actually paid him almost twice his salary what he was making. Oh, man. Now, were you competing the whole time, Matt? Were you competing while you were in school? I went through college uh, my first year. I was in the top three in the country in the USAPL. My second year, I think I got second. And then my third and fourth year of eligibility, I've won collegiate national titles. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Broke broke two American records. Um, So I I was a very good lifter, and I kept training through school. My first year of grad school, um, I turned pro, whatever you want to call that, right, and sure. squatted, squatted 900. So I was one of the youngest guys at that time to squat 900 pounds. And then um, my, seen, my my last year of grad school, I took the year off to finish my paper because I, I still trained hard, but I didn't compete. And then my first year out of school was when I squatted 1,000 pounds. Oh, wow. Uh, but long story short was is that I finished my master's. Moved over to Columbus, Ohio. Started training at Westside full time. I was driving over there on the weekends. How'd that happen, Matt? Like, where was the connection there? Because I know, I mean, I, I obviously I, I don't have anywhere the connection to Westside that you have, but I've been there a few times. I met Louie. I know Dave Tate a little bit, and a lot yeah. of guys have the similar journey. Like, you get to a certain point in powerlifting, it kind of seems like the pilgrimage. Like everybody makes their way to Westside for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, it's probably probably more so in my generation than now. I yeah, would say. sure, sure. But um, it it all started because the Arnold Classic was the big thing in the Midwest, mm-hmm. and I show up and run into Louie at about nineteen years old, and I had a five hundred raw bench. I was squatting close to seven and I was, I was pulling close to seven at, at almost wow. 20. So I was, I was a freak, but you got to remember at 20 years old, I'd already been training hard for almost eight years. Right. Sure. Sure. So by, and competing by guys, since you were early yeah, teenage years Yeah, by guys that were very skilled. Mm-hmm. So, um, it was the, uh, I was, I think 1997 or eight, I was 18 years old and I saw Louis guys benching at the Arnold classic um, and the next thing I ran into him as they were leaving the building and one of the guys named Brad Sheward, which mm-hmm. he worked for my mom, he was a, a perfusionist. Mm-hmm. He went with me to the Arnold and he pushed me over to talk to Louie. He's like, you got to go talk to these guys and train with them if you want to be the best. So I talked to Louie and Louie kind of looks me over and he's like, yeah, just come down sometime. And we'll let you train with the guys. So probably a month or two goes by and I, I drive I make the drive over, which is about two and a half hours. And uh, I kept up with him. I didn't beat nice. anybody, but I kept up with him at 19, and that kind of caught Louie's eye. And then ever since then, I was driving down there on the weekends to squat. I would squat with Chuck's group, yep, uh, Chuck Vogelpool's group yep. in the in the evenings on Friday, and then I would bench with George Halbert on Saturday mornings. Yeah, I, I was there. I was there for a, a morning workout with George Halbert. It was uh, it was definitely eye opening for sure. Guy's an animal. Yeah, yeah I mean. Those original guys that uh, kind of made that gym famous were work workaholics as yeah. far as training. They were very driven and very, very smart awesome. and still don't get enough credit, in my opinion. That's why I did that podcast with uh, with George Halbert, so people could realize he was one of the first guys to really figure out the bands. Sure. No, he was a pioneer. I mean, obviously, I think, I think I mean, you know, it might, maybe, maybe you could argue, but he's probably the best bench presser that's ever lived. Yeah, he's he's damn close. I'll say sure, that. I mean, sure. I watched him in his prime do a six twenty five raw bench at two hundred and twenty nine thirty pounds of body weight. Jesus Christ! 
Um, <laughs> and as far as that goes, too, he always looked like he lifted weights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was a, always a big burly guy. That's for he certain. Was a burly dude. He was a burly dude on a small frame that stayed highly conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, um, hey, Matt. You you talked about um, you know starting your training career to get better prepared to play football. Whatever happened yeah. to your football career along the way? Did you keep up? No, so I it? got I got offered I got offered a a partial scholarship to play at Ball State. Mm-hmm. But when I was eighteen, going nineteen, I also got offered to lift on Team USA. Mm. And I sat down and I talked to my coach, and he's like, "Look, you're not tall enough to play in the pros." If you fuck your knees up playing football, you might negate never hitting your best numbers in powerlifting. And in my opinion, I knew that I probably wasn't big enough or fast enough to be. I played nose guard, and I was a good nose guard, but I probably would have played okay at Ball State, but I don't think I would have ever gotten a look to play pro. Right. So, Um, but you got to remember too that when I walked in to test at Ball State, they made us go through a small little training camp for like walk-on or partial scholarship guys and i convinced 225 45 times jesus <laughs> at, at 18 when you came in yeah out of yeah, jesus out of christ <laughs> because remember i i got trained by old school guys yeah, and all they yeah. knew was volume yeah so i talk about i mean that's a i mean you know not a lot of people have that you know uh let's call it the perfect storm of you know just happen to have you know obviously you had an, your own innate passion to train and a want to to train that that's you know a, a given in a sense but having you know some really great influence at a young age talk yeah. about what a, what a difference that can make in somebody's life you know and, yeah. and getting and some proper tutelage yeah that was a perfect up to the storm the down part of the storm is i think that all kind of got created from my dad mm-hmm. uh passing away at 13 years old oh, that's a shame so yeah my dad got exposed to agent orange in vietnam and when he found out he wasn't feeling so hot he goes in and he's got tumors everywhere but didn't didn't know it and uh so my dad died when i was going into my seventh grade to eighth grade year and uh the guys at the gym i'd already been training with kind of knew the stuff i was going through so they just kind of kept me out of going the opposite direction or having some kind of have that be a negative influence as much as possible yeah no question no they uh Matt, on that note, you said your dad was in Vietnam. Wasn't your mom a VA nurse as well? My mom still is. She's the chief of sterilization in Cleveland now. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, so she she was in charge of an entire surgical unit at at the town that I'm from, um, and now she's now she's getting close to retiring again from the VA. <laughs> so she's going to retire with two retirements. But, oh man! Uh, now she was active for a long time. Also, your mom. Uh, Active as in she was in the military. I no, 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 no. She she went to nursing school and okay. then started work at the hometown hospital and worked her way up to being in charge of the uh, the entire surgical unit and then moved over to uh, the VA probably about eighteen years ago. No, I know you know I speak for myself and I know Sean here. You know we we both also lost our fathers very young. Uh, mine the same time as you was between seventh and eighth grade and I and I know that that was a underlying now I could look back and see that that's where a lot of my passion and drive comes from is that want to, to like, you know, kind of succeed and do better. Did that have something to do with, you know, you and, and just like the drive yeah. to push yourself? Yeah, I, no, I think what it was is I don't think my dad directly had an issue with that. I think a lot of it was the guys that turned into my father figures were the guys that were at the gym. Sure. Mm-hmm. sure. And that turned into, uh, you know, those guys always pushing me to do better and, 
Um, I don't, I don't think honestly, if I'd have ever found weights, I would have never went to college. I would have never got a master's. I would have never done any of that because that was the only thing I, I hated school yeah. and I like anything until I was learning about exercise physiology and the human body and how all that was going to apply to me. So I don't know how I'd have ever fit in the society's job role if I wouldn't have found what I do now. Well, I mean, that, there's a reason why I'm sitting here on the podcast and own a gym in the same set. I mean, we're very similarly aligned when it comes to that. Like, I, I was miserable taking, like, English and art classes and stuff like that. I was like, this is bullshit. Oh. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I probably had some form of ADD before any of that was yeah. labeled because I just was fucking bored. So and I just... Yeah, I, I I didn't learn very well on things that bored me, so that was ninety percent of high school. Yeah, that's Amen. for certain. Amen. So, uh, you know, you get through college, you, you're doing your masters, and you're competing at a high level. And was it after your masters that you went out to West Side and trained? So you were done with school at that point. So I trained through school there. I would okay. Well, I worked, I worked out a deal with Wade that I would take the early morning teams on like. Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays so that he could not come in till eight or nine o'clock okay. in return. He would let me leave early on Fridays. So at like two o'clock, so I can make it by 5 PM to train with the guys at right. Westside. Okay. And then I did, I would be back in town by noon Saturday. So I would drive down, I'd squat with Chuck. I'd stay with Louie or Amy Weisberger or one of mm -hmm. those people. And then I'd get up in the morning and train with George at eight o'clock. And then I'd be back home by noon. Right. Okay. So that was pretty much my weekends for five years. Oh man, and and so, now and now and is that the entire time you were at Westside? About those five years, or did no, you so stay after I, that? When I left, when I finished my masters in '05, I moved to Columbus to be there full time. Okay, and then me and Louie, I worked out there for about two and a half more years, and then when him and Chuck had a big fallout, I left with Chuck because I felt like I. Um, I had more more uh, loyalty towards him just because we were training partners. Sure, sure, no question. And when that happened, we had trained at a gym about uh, 10 minutes south of there for about another two and a half years, and then I decided to open up my own facility to the point that I felt like Chuck was pretty much retiring on his way out, and I was just hitting my third or second wind, but I had my own – I, my my clientele base in around town had gotten so big that my training hours had to change. So talk about that a little bit, Matt. So you know you're training, you're competing, you finished your masters, you're working at Ball State, you know, and you're working with the strength and conditioning there as an athlete. Was it ever you know did you ever want to go back to that or become that head strength and conditioning coach at the school or did you you know did you go yeah. back to Indianapolis and say hey where's my job? Yeah, that's I, you know I, sh I should probably need to do that now. <laughs> but now I probably make more money than touring, so I don't yeah, know if yeah, that yeah. would be a good move. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Especially for the hours. So here, that's kind of but what a, I'm a, at. a strength coach at a high level is the hours are brutal, terrible. Yeah, and so what I started to figure out was so this kind of played out at the same timeline. So I move over here to train at Louis. Louis knows I want to be a strength coach. And Louie knows that I have my mindset on being a strength coach at a high level, whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. And uh, Louie was good friends with Buddy Morris when he was a strength yeah. coach at the Browns at this time. So we drive up because Buddy wants to talk to Louie about training and it's off season um, for the Browns, which is usually most of the year because they're already kicked out of every playoff game. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I go up there. I remember it being wintertime, but I think I, I want to say it was around January. And we go up there. This is 2006-ish, maybe maybe seven. We go up there, and I meet Buddy, and Buddy's a real cool guy. And Louie's like, hey, this guy Matt knows his shit. You need to have him up here, you know, and helping him with the guys at the Browns. And so Buddy's kind of looking me over, and we're kind of giving him some advice on some stuff that we would do differently up there at the time and whatever. I get a call from Buddy maybe the next day after, two days after, and goes, you really want to work up here at Cleveland? And I'm like, you know, at this time, I felt like, you know, I didn't know that I had not even come close to my peak in lifting, but I knew that if it was an option to, at this time, get ahead, get ahead or at least a high assistant strength conditioning job at a pro team, I'm fucking gone from Westside, and I'm going to go work for the Browns. Sure. Well, Louie takes that as in I'm going to want to retire from lifting. You know what I mean? So it, that's kind of what started the animosity a little bit between us is that he knew that I would give up the gym to take a pro job. But, you know, I mean, who who gets offered a, you know, a job at that right. level right out of their master's? Right. And I mean, so what are you, 20, 23, 22, something like that? Uh, Maybe I'm 20, 25. 25, okay. Yeah, right. 25 to 26. Because, you know, if you figure right. you go to college yeah, until you're 23, tw- then you got two years of grad school. Yep, yep. Um, so long story short, um, uh, I get hired, buddy hires me as a first assistant, not two weeks later, does Butch Davis get fired? They bring in Romeo, Romeo Cornell and fire everybody on the staff, Yeah, including buddy, buddy went which, back to pit, right? We went back to pit after they had that, you know, that lenience time where they can't be hired by anybody else. Mm-hmm. So he became jobless for, I think I want to say a year. Because if he went and worked at Penn, he was going to lose all of his money with the Cleveland. Right. You know how that stuff works. Yeah, right? sure, sure, sure. So I'm like, well, this is fucking bullshit. Like, I busted my ass in school. I know I know more than a lot of these strength coaches. And now it doesn't even matter what I know. I can just get fired at any time. And that's when I decided I am not going that direction. Right. I'm not going to have my career tied to things that I can't control, i.e. other coaches or wins and losses, wins, losses. I just want to be able to go in and do my job. So I start thinking about this private, private type shit, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm training clients, but I'm not training anybody big around town. But then I start getting these calls and most of it was because I was lifting at with Louie, which was, Hey, would you mind getting some of these guys ready for the NFL combine? They knew I was getting, you know, looked at by getting hired by the Browns and things like that. And I had been writing a lot of articles at this point. So I was, in a small sense, slightly known in the in the industry, but nothing crazy. And uh, so I started training some guys for the NFL Combine. They do really well. That increases a little bit of notoriety. Um, and then I get a call from uh, the military. So they about 2007, um, I get listed in my first big magazine i want to say it was like flex magazine it was some bullshit. where were you writing for before that matt like what were some of the articles were you writing for like uh, elite fts was that around then or t nation or any of that powerlifting usa okay okay yep so you know back then that was pretty much the only thing you could read that was a magazine uh that was powerlifting oriented well 2007 flex magazine does a huge spread on west side barbell and i'm i remember i have it yeah, I'm listed in that as one of the top lifters, and then it also says, well, this guy also has a master's degree, you know, mm-hmm. and whatever. Well, Special Forces Army saw that, and somehow they get a hold of me, and they're like, hey, would you mind coming down and showing our guys some stuff, 
blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really, you know, I mean, I don't know much about military, but I'm sure I could go down there and probably, I could probably get an idea where you guys are weak. So I get down there, long story short, I do really well. They really like what I'm showing them. And then over the next year or two, they sign some contracts, some short-term contracts, and they start seeing these reductions in injuries and these increases in performance rates because they were doing too much cardio, not enough weightlifting. Sure. <laughs> sounds familiar. Yeah, sounds familiar. So I, I get that fixed, and uh, that catches the attention of a fire department around town. And they said, well, God, man, this guy's, from, this guy's from Columbus, Ohio. So I get a phone call from uh, Dublin Fire Department, and they asked me if they think I could take over the wellness program and make some changes on their wellness and strength programs that might do the same thing, increase performance and reduce injury. Because keep in mind, at the time, they were spending well over a half a million dollars a year in insurance premiums because they had so many injuries. Jeez, yeah. Um, so and I and probably no strength and conditioning protocol or barely any. Yeah, zero. And their weight rooms were completely, you know, bicep curl machines and fucking <laughs> Smith machines and everything you don't need to reduce injuries. Yeah, in that late 80s, early 90s, that was like the, the end of like that Nautilus era. Yeah. So everybody just had those multi-machines, you know. So we had this trickle-down effect. So I come in and I go, look, I could probably fix this. And I did basically an assessment on them for, I would say, I don't know, two, three months. And I figured out that we were dealing with some really weak people with a really terrible work ethic. I mean, oh, classic fireman, you know. And uh, so I said, look, if I'm going to take this over and change some things, I'm going to need five years because I can't change them fast enough and get them strong enough quickly because if I try to push too fast, we're going to increase injury. And they're like, yeah, okay, we'll do that. So they did that. They got all the equipment that I wanted, and we started playing around with it. Well, five years later, and unbeknownst to me, my fire chief, Chief Al Wu, is keeping very strict insurance data records on all this. So that way we can start showing savings to the trustees and things like that. So after year five, we cut their insurance premiums in half. Wow, that's fantastic. And, and this is no stretch of the imagination when I got there, over 130 guys, the average deadlift was 180. Ugh. And these are guys that got to carry people out of a burning building or something. Yeah, you know what no I mean? shit. So it's like, plus That's their own body weight. They're probably and gassed. Imagine, imagine yeah, yeah, all my, strength, my strength level and walking in and seeing this. Yeah, of course. You're like, what is happening in here? This is blasphemy. Well, at first, <laughs> I'm, first, I'm completely stressed the fuck out because yeah, I'm sure. like, what am I going to do? Like, this is like a whole different problem I have never right. seen before. You come in, but one guy's other, making chili, the, the other guy's making nachos, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the other end of the token, I'm like, man, this would be really easy to get these guys stronger. Sure. So I start devising a plan that's the same system that I use, but it's way more downgraded, way more simple, way less taxing. And I create this system of developing them over a multiple year process to get them where they're fairly strong. Well, fast forward to 2015, which is seven years later, the average is 405 deadlift. Wow. That's right. fantastic. And then the what type of, when you talk about that program, like what, in a sense, what's your involvement? How do you set that up? Do you, are you there a couple times a week? Do, is it a program that you put them on and you come in for consulting here and there? Like, how does it work in terms of your involvement with that, with the, with the so, firehouse? Well, that was kind of a, that was kind of the hard part with that development was, is it came over so many years of correcting and developing. So when I take over a fire department now, the system is way different because I've learned. Right, sure. But You've tweeted a bunch of times. 
Yeah. In the beginning, what I found out was, is that, okay, I had to have everything traction based. So I got lots of belt squats, lots of reverse hypers, lots of glute ham raises. I didn't teach a lot of core lifts at first because the guys weren't ready for them. Yep. Once I developed the system of fixing their weaknesses only and trying to put them in traction-based environments to get them stronger without increasing compression, I started to realize that once they were ready, which would took literally no shit, took about a year and a half to get them ready to teach them all the lifts. Once I did that, it was like teaching. It was like your best teaching you could ever imagine. It sure. made me look so smart because <laughs> these guys were already been belt squatting for a year. Right. So once I put a bar on their back, they knew how to do everything properly and perfect and looked pretty good. And right. I was they like, had the strength at that point, but none of the pain associated the with the learning. Yeah. And more importantly, the coordination yeah. and the lack of muscle weaknesses. So were you also doing like a lot of functional stuff too, like like kettlebell carries, you know, sandbag, like things like that? Were you doing like, you know, some not, forms of functional training? First, or Not at first because that's the, then that would be the, the thought pattern that most people would go to, but you're increasing compression. Sure. So – the problem with that is, is those guys weren't even ready for that. Remember, you're dealing with 170 pound elephants. Yeah, yeah. Matt, you touched you take, upon that in the uh, in your product that you just developed for the tactical strength athlete, and um, it, it's a common occurrence in the military. Is you come in right out of basic, and within six short months, you're expected to carry 70 pounds to 100 pounds on your back plus additional yeah. weight for 12 to 15 miles. Yep. So you're yep. blowing out hips, knees, and backs, and shoulders yep. left and right, and it's it's so, just so unknown. So what I find is that that's the, the thought pattern should be traction-based only for upwards of 12 months. Once that's developed, then you, tra you train core lifts to get them impeccable as far as technique, form, and everything. Because have you ever seen somebody pick up something wrong that knows how to delve and squat? No. Oh, yeah, no. sure. But you see normal people pick up sandbags and do conditioning work completely fucking wrong. Every day. They don't know how to work out at all. So what I did was I created a traction-based environment, did that for almost a year, then worked into core lifts. Now the teaching's almost locked in. Do that for six, eight months, get them a base on that. Then I can go to fire-specific drills. Hmm. Once I did it in that almost two-year cycle, the injury rates fell down to the floor Strength rates went way up, and then the, the bodies got long enough to time to adapt to it. So now we can get guys to work out on duty, and they can go take a run right now after a heavy, heavy max effort squat workout, which is perfect. Right, sure. You, you've increased over that two or three year period, you've increased their work capacity so much that they're, you know. Yeah, at, at, a, at a 1% per, per month rate. Wow. So the point, like when you take an average guy, you have to do it super slow because. The only way you're going to get firemen that don't tend to like to work out is to pay them to work out on duty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. So pretty, I, yeah, and that's the other things I've learned along the way is we initially set the system up to where I wasn't training these guys on duty, and it was like you could hear a cricket's chirp. Hmm. Once we put it on duty where they got to train while they were getting paid, oh, it was amazing. All of a sudden, everybody started showing up. <laughs> well, then – once I got them strong enough, slowly to where they could work out really hard and it didn't affect their day, now I got the problem fixed. Yeah. So now, how did you go about, um, you know, in, in a sense, like in inside the firehouse, you know, do you set up 
Um, like again, like how do you set up their program? Are you there every day at first? Are you there a lot? Do you do you give them a program? You know, obviously, you know, if you're talking about people, we have a lot of firemen here that work with us, some local uh, uh, firehouses here, and you know, and their level of trainability is super low, and most of them are coming in, you know. You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, after they pass their physical fitness exams, it just goes downhill from there. So uh, how did you ensure that level of uh, of quality in coaching? Well, doing it slow like I have, I made it made it fun. Okay. So if you, you're not taking guys and beating them to pieces, they're going to come back. Yeah. Especially sure. if they start feeling better. No, right? No so question. It, all, it all becomes a snowball effect. I find that the biggest problem with people training fire departments is they try to do it too fast. They don't have a long-term plan in place. They're not trying to make the guys feel better before they make them feel worse. Sure. So the so the buy-in isn't there. They don't really buy in because they're like, man, I'm getting crushed here, and this is terrible. This is why I will not take on a fire department unless it's a five-year deal. Right. Okay. Because right. I know I I fucking know what is I'm going to have to do. Right. Which Me means I'm gonna start from bare bones, and I'm going to have to baby crawl this thing. <laughs> Matt, from but a coaching. Oh, but ahead. once I get that, yeah, once I get that done and develop the buy-in, everybody feels better. Everybody feels stronger. It it, it sells itself, and I don't have to do it anymore. Especially just, when they look at the numbers too. I mean, hey, if you're looking at you know look at the returns from the insurance premiums, I mean that that yeah. that sells itself. Well, especially now that you have data. Now all I got to do is if a, if a fire department calls me and wants my services, I set them down with a huge pamphlet of all the money we've saved these departments I've had for years on end. And I show them the, the direction of the way we need to go it, and it's buy it or let me leave. Yep. I don't have to. I don't have to sell it anymore. It's sold itself. So the the trick is is that can you save a department money because that's going to get the people that pay the bills on board right. because you got to remember the people that sign checks, they and I hate to say this, but they give a flying fuck about physical fitness. Yeah, of course. It's all about they, money. They, it's all about cash, and if you can make them look good by saving them money. You are the man because I'm probably one of the only programs that these townships have in place that save them money. So, Matt, are you training them um, at your gym? Or are you actually going out and outsourcing, writing the plans, and you have other coaches that help implement these plans at various fire departments? Or are you doing it all um, under your roof, um, under you, under your tutelage? It's a mixture, but most of the departments I deal with, I make them at every firehouse. So, the, just this morning. I train five departments, and those departments have all of my equipment in each department. Wow! wow. Right, so, so you just I went one to the next. Well, well, what they do is they I have a centralized unit at that township. They all come to me to one location, Got but it. they have everything that I'm teaching them with at their place too. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And that's the other thing is I will not take on a department that won't buy everything I want them to have because I know what it takes to reduce the injury. Right. right. So. So you can't just go like, yeah, well, okay, you got a couple kettlebells and a squat rack. I'll work with you. I won't work with you. Like, you're going to go buy a bell squat machine. You're going to go buy a glute ham. You're going to go buy all this because at the end of the day, you want me to show you injury reduction. I can't do that with basic equipment. Right. You know, you need certain equipment. And I'm sure, you know, do you run into problems with, like, smaller departments in terms of their budget and stuff like that? Like, the problem we have here is that we deal with mostly um, – volunteer department so there is a limited budget you know and yeah that... the i well the nice thing is, is is columbus is a fairly uh affluent town yeah sure big city too money and bigger city but what you find is is that 
chiefs and places like that can find that money and can allocate it if you can show two times the savings in the next five years. Sure, sure. Everybody answers to trustees or somebody, and if they're showing a reduction in injury and a huge money savings, who wouldn't, as a business, want to spend 20 to save 100 Absolutely. No score, no question. And now, is that the biggest part? Like, so speaking on like your business, you know, winning strength and and yeah. Ludus Magnus are, are are some of those some of those fire uh, men and the firehouses coming to your gym and, and training with you at your gym as well. Yes. Awesome. So right now we're getting ready for everybody at in, in Ohio for the police fire game. It's going to be in Canton this year. Oh, cool. So I have about I have about twenty five or so firemen that all come from around the area that I feel like can be prepped for powerlifting meat. Um, but we have guys come in. Honestly, I have guys come in that, you know, aren't really allowed to lift on duty. They're off because they're physically injured and I will train the other body parts around it. Sure. You just keep them moving. Out. Sure. You know, so we have connections like that. Um, I actually get a guy ready for the FBI here at the gym, but we have, we have a lot of firemen that take it upon themselves to also push this, personally on their off days and i find that that's one of the biggest problems with firemen is they're always something else too so they're a carpenter or they're a roofer sure because they have so much time off they do a lot of other things which actually starts to weigh and make them a worse fireman because they should be a fireman first and they should be fit enough to do a fireman's job but then when i have a i mean you know i've i've had all kinds of discussions and disputes with guys because they're like well, I got to do this tomorrow for this. I was like, you don't have to do shit. You make 85000 a year every third day, and you need to be fit enough to pay or to do what the taxpayers pay you to do. Right, save lives and stuff, sure. Instead of trying to go out and make 200000 this year because you got five side jobs. <laughs> I mean, it's, so, it seemed, it's, I mean everywhere. It's, it's everywhere with that. We, and we, every every, yep. uh, every every fireman here has a landscaping company or a like home reconstruction company, You know, power yep. washing, you name it. So yeah. Matt, I, I first got led on to your uh, your teachings, your programs, and stuff through Mark Taysom, uh, who ran oh. the tactical athlete program at Fort Carson. Well, okay, I apologize, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's pretty done pretty good by me. Um, I saw him face a similar barrier. Now you you mentioned in 2007 the uh, the SF unit reached out to you. That was the 75th Ranger Regiment, or was that uh, was that 75th? Yeah, 75th Ranger Regiment was at Fort Benning. That was the first one. The second one that I worked for was 4th Infantry at Fort Carson. That's where I met Taysom. Right. So Taysom was in charge of 3rd Infantry, and I was in charge of 4th. Okay, yeah, I was in the 3rd Infantry Brigade. I trained under him for a little while. Yeah. I just like messing with him, so that's why I said I apologize. No, of, course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, he uh, he actually had you come down to the TAP gym, and I believe you signed the uh, the coveted Olympic platform, yep. correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember. A- not like it was yesterday. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you run into a similar burden trying to get the soldiers, not necessarily the, the Rangers, because they're they're a little bit more committed to the job, it seems like, from what I've experienced. But did you run into that same burden with the uh, regular active duty soldiers? That's a tough question. But see, let me tell you where I have an advantage over Mark. I have an advantage over Mark because I plan ahead. And what I mean by that is when I came in to take that job over for 4th Infantry, I told him it's my way or I'm out of here. I'm not going to deal with any of your bureaucracy and bullshit. Mm-hmm. You're going to do everything the way I tell you guys to do it. And I don't care what you think, you know, you don't know shit. Right. <laughs> and, I told, and I told that to the generals mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be in an area where I was just going to be used like a puppet and filling up somebody's shoes. Of course. 
I was like, I want this done my way and you're going to get everything that I want or you can find somebody else. And I think when you come to ask somebody like that at that level, they have more respect. Mark got hired by a third party entity and brought in to do that job, which meant he didn't really have as much control as he wanted to have. Right. And he got uh, he got shadowed often. I mean, I've seen him kick guys out of the gym for doing flutter kicks because the army wanted them just the generals, the officers wanted them to continuously work and not rest in between heavy sets. Yeah, and I told him, I said, you guys try to do that shit to me. We're going to have a big fucking problem. <laughs> nice. So I, I just started off more as a hard ass and, and made it. It was my business that took the contract. Okay. So when I signed in, it was Winning Strength Depot, Inc. took the contract. When Taysom got signed in, it was a third-party vendor that came in and then hired him. Right. Uh, That's the other big problem with the military is they need to stop doing that third-party vendor shit. Right. Of course. Because somebody that bid that contract probably got a million dollars and Taysom got paid a hundred. Right. To do, and they did nothing other than take the insurance burden. Right, right. They just had the umbrella insurance plan. Yeah. Exactly. I, yeah. And I already had a pretty good business savvy sense, and I knew what it was going to take by the time I was at Fourth Infantry and working with the military and Ranger Regiment. I knew I had to have complete control. Or there was no way that this was going to show any data for me. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I did that, and what we did was is the average PT score at 4th Infantry, you know, a perfect score being 300. Right. They went from a 210 to a 270 in a year. Jeez. Nice. Which is all – and I was in charge of 6,000 guys. I don't think I've ever seen a battalion's PT score that high of an average. Yeah, it's insane. But let me tell you how I did it. I did it by teaching the teacher. So I knew that I wasn't going to be able to take those guys and train them all myself because there were 6,000 of them. Of course. So what I did was instead of making one centralized gym like what Taysom did, every hundred guys had their own portable gym that went with them no matter where they went. Oh, that's awesome. So they had their own pods that had reverse hypers, um, squats, uh, uh, squat racks, bench presses, bumper plates, kettlebells, chains, bands, sleds. All this stuff, and every every hundred people was allocated that much equipment. Wow, that's and, great. Yeah, and that then I made sure that they had the time of PT, that everything was set up to where guys in the middle couldn't overpower what I wanted done because everybody that was in charge had to sit in my class for 40 hours. So they had to take a one-week-long class from 6 in the morning till 5 at night or more every Monday through Friday, and it was 20 guys in each class, and I taught them everything I could teach them about programming, detecting weaknesses, not to overtrain cardio, fixing hamstrings and glute activation for lower back, showed them all that stuff, and then let them apply it to their guys, and then I came back every month and checked on each unit. Now, do you still work with some of those contracts, Matt? Absolutely not, because the problem with the military is is that bosses change every two, every two years. Yeah, yeah. So does the budget. So, I, that's the other thing I started to decide was I started putting less energy into military and more energy into fire departments because when a fire department gets a new chief, he's there for twenty years. Right, sure, and, and a lot of the a lot of the um, a lot of the firemen themselves will be there for right. you know, 10, so 20 years. What I found was is that I made a lot of money working for the military, but what I also found was the stress level was just too crazy because I didn't have enough long-term control because even though I wanted even that, that two, two ten, two twenty range to be up at two seventy, I knew I wasn't going to sustain it with the right leaders in place or without the right, right leaders. in place. Right. 
there's no way I could sustain it. And what I found was is that now that I've been working with some of these fire departments for nearly a decade, we're showing two, three, four hundred thousand dollars savings in a year. I mean, that's that's where people start opening up, going, "Oh wow, this system is pretty awesome." That's with the military, amazing. it was hit and miss because I I would get something in place, we would start seeing amazing results, and then my bosses would change. Yeah, and then you'd have to start. You you almost have to like pitch it again to another group of people. Like, yeah. hey, this is what we're doing. Well, you know, just once, and I'm done. Like, I, yeah, I you yeah, know, yeah. I don't have the energy to sit there. And, if right. you want me to be a good strength coach and get all this stuff done, then I have to sell it, and then you just gotta let me do my job. Speaking of all these different businesses and and coaching and being really truly what you know is the epitome of an entrepreneur. Like, can you talk a little bit about? how you were able to keep your athletic career in line and how you were still able to achieve some, you know, superhuman numbers along the way? Yeah. Well, I'm, I guess answering that question, uh, or the way I think you want it answered or like the way you want me to say is I never let my business get in front of my lifting ever. Hmm. So when I sign a contract or I would go work with the military, I'm like, look, I can't work with you guys these days. This is the day I squat. If I was put that, <laughs> I, and I, I should have started period. doing that years ago. Damn it! And it, yeah, and if you would have, you you'd be surprised at how many people, when you set limits like that, how much respect you get. Well, you're just because, saying no. I mean, you, you're yeah. you're eliminating things, and you're just you're setting a parameter right from the get go. Where, like you said, I mean, you are in control. Yeah, I put it. I put it to where it's I'm in control, and I have control of my day and I don't let people put it in front of me and I don't care how much money it is. And when I did that, I think what happened to me is that that set, you know, for the right people, it set a whole different level of respect going, damn, this guy not only wants to teach people how to do it, he's not going to let other people's schedules get in the way of his, you know? Yeah. Now you, now you recently just, you recently stopped powerlifting. That's it. Yeah. I mean, still training my balls off. Right. Right. No, I have I'm been watching now, and but you've kind of turned the corner a little bit. I mean, I see you, you're super leaned up. You you got your diet on point, and you've yeah. been like kind of you're still hitting huge numbers, but physically you look a lot different than you did a few years ago. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And a lot of that came from just visiting Serrano. I mean, obviously, you know, everybody wants to look better. I don't give a of shit. Of course. But the thing of it was is that if I wanted to stay in the iron game and I wanted to keep doing some pretty cool stuff, regardless of what that was. I wasn't going to be able to just focus on numbers anymore. I had to start focusing on a more of a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't I couldn't go in to these fire departments and these military people and tell them, hey, you guys need to drop some body fat and get in shape. And I always look pretty muscular for a big guy. But the point of it is, is that I want people to look at me and not only say, God, this guy's strong, but this guy knows about diet. This guy knows about right. jacked, lean, strong. He's got it all. Yeah. Mobile. So it started to be more of an athletic and longevity approach. And I knew that if I just kept worrying about numbers and started not being concerned with my blood work and not being concerned with my nutrition, that eventually it was going to end up biting me ass. And I didn't want to be that guy that everybody looked at and go, man, Matt used to be fucking strong and, and pretty muscular. And now he's just, he's smart. He knows his shit. But I always wanted to be the guy that people looked at and go, this dude talks it. This dude walks it. This guy has done everything under the moon to put himself in the best position to teach us as much as he can. That's awesome, Matt. And what was what was it? So talk a little bit about the diet and stuff like that. You mentioned Serrano and stuff like that. So you know what what are you doing with that? And what what was some of the big changes? You just go from that. Were you on like 
you know, for years, was it the typical powerlifting diet where you just like, you know, you had, you know, where, where, where does Louis, where do Louis and the boys go all the time? Wasn't it not oh, Bob? Bob Evans. Bob Evans. He, Bob TJ. Evans. You know. Yeah, they go to. They used to go to TJ's. Yeah, TJ's. Which was even ten times worse. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know how much more worse you get than Bob Evans. Yeah. 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 So, um, fast forward, uh, you pass West Side. It's probably I'm 33, so it's about five years ago. Um, I'm. I had just broke the world record squat and equipped. I did 1,200 on squats. And uh, I had known about Serrano through other people because he's a he's a pretty prominent figure here in town for mm-hmm. being a doctor and whatnot. And I'm like, you know what, fuck it. I'm 30, you know, I'm 32, 33. I probably need to get my blood work done and look at it and blah, blah, blah. So I call Serrano. He's like, yeah, I know who you are, man. Just come over next week and we'll do your blood. Well, he doesn't tell me to fast. He just tells me to show up. So what do I do? I go to Chipotle and get like two burritos. <laughs> <laughs> try to keep my weight at like three. Yeah, yeah. So I he lose those gains. He's like, holy fuck, you know, and it wasn't crazy. My blood sugar was like 115. Right. It was, but it wasn't low either. And he's like, man, you're going to have to get this shit under control. I was like, dude, you didn't tell me to come in fasted. <laughs> so he, he basically gives me this huge spiel on how I need to watch my sugars and how it's going to affect my blood pressure and blah, blah, blah. And I told myself that I would always push the, the limits as far as I could go as long as I didn't feel like it affected my health. So he changes my diet around. He puts my carbs around my training and starts to cut my carbs back. Well, initially, I lose a little bit of weight, but I start hardening up really, really well. This is about five years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started to like the way I felt and the way I looked. He takes my blood sugar again. It's like 89. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, all right, now you're on the right path. Now we just got to build up your fats and things from there. So um, long story short, about 33 is when my diet started to change. But my point is, is that when I graduated high school, I weighed about 250. And I was a big kid. I, I wasn't all muscle, but I wasn't all fat. I was I was pretty strong and pretty lean and been training pretty hard. But I trained my ass off and ate whatever I wanted. And I only weighed 284 when I graduated grad school. Right. So it took me it took me six years, seven years to put on 30 pounds. So it was a long process for me to put on good weight. And uh, so I had to eat everything under the moon or I thought I had to eat everything under the moon to get that to get that big because I wanted to be a full 308 because I was six foot one. Right. And I knew that I was going to be too thin at 275 to hit big numbers. So long story short is it took me a lot of food and a lot of bullshit to weigh 315, 318. So. um yeah, so that's how it started, and then I started to become friends with Charles Poliquin. Mm-hmm. He started showing tricks on dieting, then being really good friends with Stan Efferding. He even showed me more tricks on dieting because if I think that frame-wise, I have a very similar build to Stan. We're both six foot. We're both wide-shouldered. We both have pretty thick hips and legs, and we both have had to train our asses off to be super strong. So his diet, that vertical diet that's becoming more popular – just seemed to fit how my body reacted to food. So I've been playing around with that for like the last 20 weeks and I've showed some progress pictures, but um, yeah, it looks great. Yeah. I definitely see it. Like, and do you feel better, Matt? Do you feel like you, I don't know, like a lot of, a lot of guys when they change their diets up and they get like to more of a whole food diet and like, let's call that like, you know, kind of like a, like a whole 30 type thing where it's, you know, you're getting rid of some of the grains, you're getting rid of like, are you, are you, are you not eating like dairy and things like that? Or are you cutting some foods out? 
Yeah. So the only dairy that I have is like whole, uh, whole Greek yogurt that's unflavored, which sure. tastes like, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but do you feel like you breathe a lot better too? A lot of guys, they're all of a sudden their mucous membranes clean up a lot and stuff like oh, that. No question. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing too. I was constantly getting sinus infections, and that's what originally Serrano was telling me. He's like, dude, you're probably allergic to gluten or dairy. Right. You know. So when I wanted to put on a bunch of weight, I used to drink a gallon of chocolate milk a day. Yes. Sure. Yes. <laughs> right. And I, but I was allergic to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would put on 20 fucking pounds. It was all inflammation. Sure, sure. You didn't even realize it so at that I point. What I realized was, is, is uh, you know, Serrano was like, you don't need to weigh 315 to be that strong. You, need, you could probably do it at 295. So when I went down to 295, I did my first raw powerlifting meet and then hit the, like the third highest total ever. And then the, I think about less than a year later, I broke the world record. That's fantastic. That's awesome. uh, and I did it at 293. In the 308 class. So I was giving up 15 pounds for what I would have normally gave up, but I was getting healthier. And uh, that's just what kind of started the whole thing. So, so like, it, like, do you have some strength goals now or just some physical goals? I mean, not, if, you're, if you're, in a sense, done with powerlifting, you've turned the yeah. corner a little bit. Not that you're old by any means, but you're definitely older, wiser, and smarter with your training and your nutrition now. You know, what are you chasing now? Like, what are some of the goals that you have now? So the big goal is, is I've always had this in my mind. Um, I want to hit 225 for 60 reps. 225 for 60. Well, I saw. So uh, no, let me pause for a we second. Tell Cessna about yeah, we we got a guy here who's doing about 46 reps. He's a 300 pound, you know, football player. He's, He's a, a monster. Tackle in Canada. And um, oh. so, and uh, so I, I see that you know your friends with Stan Effering, and and I also saw you training with like Michael Hearn and some of that crew. Yep. Like how that how that come about? Because I've always been I've been a huge fan of Michael Hearns for years. I've, when I was a kid, I mean he's he's got to be fifty. I think he's close to fifty. Yeah. And 50. Uh, and he looks like I mean he, he looks the same as he did when I was watching him on American I'm Gladiator. By, I'm not shooting you by any stretch of the means. He came in here and bench speed work with me and Stan on Arnold weekend. And that son of a bitch, we did the last set on speed work with 185, a double red band, which is 100 pounds of mm -hmm. band, so 285, and one chain on each side, which is about 330. And that son of a bitch, I did 25 reps with that on my last set to fail. He did fucking 30. Jesus. I know. He's super strong. Super strong. He's, he is one of the most – he is a – he is a anomaly. That dude is unbelievable because I actually have known Michael Hearn for 12 years or maybe longer. I first met him. I, I, you know, like most kids, Oh, I want to go check out gold's gym, the original gold's gym. This was like 2000 and probably six. I was probably just moved over to Columbus. I went over there and, uh, flew to LA and I was like, I'm going to lift at the, uh, at the Arnold, you know, yeah, I, I'm going to lift at I'm going to lift at the Mecca. I'm going to lift at Gold Gym. I'm going to see Arnold and all this shit. And I get over there, and I run into Chris Bell because I know Mark Bell really yep. well. And I run into Chris Bell, and Chris Bell's like, oh, man, let me introduce you to Michael Hearn, man. He's he's the strongest guy we got out here at Gold's. And I meet him, and I remember him from fucking American Gladiator. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, what's going on? And ever since then, we've been really good friends, you know. He's respected my path of what I did with powerlifting and I've always respected him as just being uh, yeah I've always just been admired I mean like enamored by him because he, I, I see him his workouts and here he is like you know repping out an incline bench with 405 for like 10 15 reps and then oh. but he's shredded you know I mean, he is a bodybuilder I mean he's a freak of nature Dude, 
he stays lean and jacked all year round. And, you know, so I've been friends with him for a long time. That's well, awesome. I ended up becoming friends with Stan through Mark Bell as well. Okay. So me and Mark used to, we trained at Westside together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was coming over on the weekends and he was here full time for not real long, but he was here. And, uh, long story short, um, Mark started to really like what I was doing with the lifting uh, we started to get really tight after I was getting really good raw and after I'd hit that world record equipped in 11 and uh, we just became really good friends. And uh, he kind of started introducing me to some of the people in his circle and I met Stan efforting and I was like, fuck man, I would love to be that strong and be built like him. Like he was just like everything I ever was trying to ever work for. I was like, this dude looks like a pro bodybuilder, but can lift with us. Yeah. Like, which is rare. And Michael Hearns in the same boat. And, uh, so I started to realize that maybe I didn't, maybe focusing just on strength and not putting enough info, uh, information and knowledge into nutrition just wasn't the right way to go. Because in, in my opinion, I would love to be built like Stan or Mike is at 50. Sure, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, a lot of guys have that similar epiphany. I think for a lot of guys that are, let's call it chasing strength, and for me being a football player and then training like an athlete and always been into the heavy weightlifting, it was, like, it was about 30 years old or so when I was like, Man, I start to see guys that are like just as strong, but like super lean. I'm like, man, there's got to be more to it than just like stuffing. You know, I used to I used to call it the trifecta. On my way home from college, I would stop yeah. at Burger King, Taco Bell, and McDonald's on the way home, yeah. and you know, and well, like you know I'm bulking up. Yeah, you know what's funny is uh, when I'm talking to Stan, and he's told me this I don't know how many times, and he said this to other people too. But um, you know what's funny is Stan says, like, when he takes somebody down and looks at their lifting, he was telling me this about Larry Wheels, mm-hmm. which is another total freakazoid, yeah, you know? Oh, my God. He said, you know what? You know what? He said, when I looked at Larry Wheels as a whole, he goes, I only focused 10% of my energy on what he was doing for training. Yeah. He's like, his his major holes were what he was eating, sleeping, et cetera. Right, all the other stuff that he wasn't, that he yeah, didn't have dialed in. Me and you, well, you know, my opinion – my entire twenties was understanding and mastering training. Yeah. Maybe, maybe even into my early thirties volume. How many times am I needs to squat? How many reps should I do? What's my rest periods between this? I didn't give a flying shit about what I was eating. I just knew I needed to feel full and have energy Yep. where I was missing half the boat at least. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm obviously, you know, it is what it is at this point, but if you look back like shit, man, if I could have gone back and straightened up my diet when I was 20 years old and gotten all those other pieces of the puzzle dialed in, what could I have done physically? Dude, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I think, I think probably with the cards, the way I had it laid out, which makes me content and saying, you know, like, well, you know, if I don't do another powerlifting meet, I'm not too worried about it is I did everything that I could possibly do. I felt like I did it the smartest I could do it. I felt like I was around the smartest people that I could be around at the time. Yeah. Um, there's just no better way I could have done it. I mean, I never said, Oh man, I should have trained harder in my twenties. There's no way I could have. So Matt, let's, let's talk about your business and, and let's talk a little bit about, you know, where the revenue streams come from. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how you're running your gym is, is the plan to have a membership gym? Do you train people for money? You know, give me an idea of, you know, kind of what falls under the umbrella of winning strength and, you know, where the revenue comes from and, and what okay. some of the, let's call it like marketing plan strategies and things like that. How are you generating revenue and stuff like that and getting okay. business? Yeah. So I would say my major sources of business are my contracts with tactical, you know, police, fire, military, then I have my own performance center where we do private training only. There's no key gym. 
Mm-hmm. So if, if you're at my gym and I'm not training you, you're not at my gym. Mm-hmm. So that's that's limited hours, but very busy now. Mm-hmm. Then we have online approach. So I do online coaching and we do online assessments. So if you call me and say, hey, Matt, I got a messed up squat. I can't figure out what's wrong. I would send you would send me videos and I would assess that and break it down for you. Um, we also do assessments for uh, um setting up gyms like you know what equipment do i need to reduce this injury or this or that so for instance i've worked uh, along the lines with some other different departments around the country just to make sure they have all the right stuff set up and they don't waste hundreds of thousands of dollars buying bicep curl machines and things like that sure sure um the other thing is is uh now with the online coaching getting so big i started realizing there was these huge gaps in the equipment market so about five or six years ago, I started uh, building my own belt squat machine where I basically cut it apart and fixed it and cut apart and fixed it probably 10 times before I got it right. In my, I, I can weld and, and uh, work You did steel. it yourself? So, you did it yourself? Yeah. So the first three prototypes I made myself. Oh, wow. And uh, once we got those straightened out and I figured out how to make everything tick, um, I turned it over to a builder that I have now that we pushed out 130 units last year. And sold three of them to the Carolina Panthers. We just sold three to the Eagles. Um, so what I started to do was create some machines and some different designs of things that I felt were gaps in the uh, equipment industry, and that really has started to become a big a big deal for the business. Oh, so awesome. my big my big revenue streams are online coaching, training at the gym, equipment, and then my contracts with the tactical departments. Now, you know, similar to us where we have, you know, multiple areas where we have the, our online business, we have the gym. Now, our gym's quite a bit different. We have a, a full-scale membership gym. We train a lot of athletes, high school, middle yeah. school, stuff like that. Um, how do you separate your marketing plan? And, like, you know, do you have – do you do you do any, like, I don't know, let's call it vision traction where, like, you set up a, a plan for each business, you know, where you're going to market, who's your target market, you know, how I'm going to get the word out, stuff like that? That's, you know, that's probably one of the biggest holes I have in my whole setup is I just, I just focus my ability on being real. Like I have focused my ability on just being the baddest dude I could be. (laughs) You're doing a pretty good job at that. I mean, mean, from from afar, from Jersey, you look badass. So, I mean, that's (laughs) for certain. You know, so I, I think, I think the biggest issue I would find in this, and I'm not saying you guys or anybody else in general are doing mm -hmm. things wrong is I always try to to walk it as hard as I could before I talked it. Sure. And that I think is the biggest business advantage that I have over most people is, you know, I busted my ass breaking records. I busted my ass getting a master's in school. Yep. That was my marketing. Right. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, it's hard to argue with a guy who's, you know, squatted 1,200 pounds when he tells you that, hey, this piece of machine is integral to helping me squat 1,200 pounds. Oh, okay. (laughs) You know, something that you said. And I'm not saying... Yeah, I'm not saying that's the end-all, be-all, and sure. I'm not saying there's not other ways or avenues sure. in order to create marketing. But, but what I find is that if I stay positive to my passion, I let the marketing do itself. You've also like, seemed like you're a pretty good connector, though. I mean, you've made you made some you you you've made a lot of friends in the industry. You you know a lot of strength coaches. You know a lot of you know top level powerlifters, and and some of the people that you've mentioned have also yeah. gone on to a very high level of success in the industry as well. So, you know, Stan well, Efferning is a very well-known guy. Michael Hearn's a very well-known guy, you know, so. I mean, I'll tell you how you get those connections. And like I said, it's kind of a little saying I use. To be respected is to be connected. Sure, 100%. Right. You know, that's, My, some, that's something that you talk about, you know, 
while you were at Westside, right after right after you got your graduate degree, and I'm sitting here listening to this story, and obviously, you know, follow you from afar, and you know, we have our notes, and we've got our in-depth show notes here uh, with everything that we we need to know about you to be in tune with the podcast. And it's like, you know, I'm listening to this podcast, and I know you don't work at Westside, you don't stay at Westside, and you've gone on to become a really successful entrepreneur, but. You know, I'm sitting here, and it's like Mark Bell, Stan Efferding, and all these people that you've kind of, you know, come come in contact with and connected with. And it's like, wow, like, you know, you've really um, been able to use that as a launch pad when maybe mm. you weren't making a lot of money in your early 20s. And you maybe didn't know how you were going to make all the money that you have now. And, uh, yeah. you know, and you've really been able to extract a lot out of that experience now as a, you know, almost 40 year old uh, entrepreneur yeah. well you know the thing of it is is like paul quinn's been one of the biggest business connections that i have he's a really good friend of mine and uh you know how i got his uh how i got connected with him was he connected with me he saw that i was doing cool shit he wanted to know more about what i was doing i think the thing of it is is that successful people see other people's success and start to you know you're you're the average of the five people that you, that you spend time with. You know, and if I had to say who are my five probably closest friends that I know would do a lot for me, you're talking – I'm talking about guys that are all worth over millions of dollars. Sure. And I'm not saying I use that for anything. I'm just saying that those people have done some very successful, very high-level shit right. that if I needed help, they would help me. Success is and, a mindset. I mean, it really, it truly yeah. is a mindset. You find that negative people that don't do a whole lot hang around with other negative people that don't do a whole lot. I mean, there's a reason why we called you. I mean, we, we identified, you know, about a dozen or so high-level strength entrepreneurs, people that were doing different avenues of the business, and we're like, well, yeah. who, who's the one powerlifter that's running a, an amazing business who's turned their, yeah. you know, powerlifting into a thing? And it was you. So, and there's a reason why yeah. we wanted to connect with you and, and speak yeah. to you. So, well, Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just think that people, what people need to do is that instead of focusing on creating – connections is be be something special that other people that are passionate about what they do can see that you're legit they can see that you're that you're what you do is what you really are and you know that's why mark respects me that's why stan respects me that's why charles Paulquin helps me with stuff because we're all we all help each other and we all respect each other and we've all done high level things and and we all realize that we're all out for the betterment of all of us. You That's great I mean? advice for any you know young strength entrepreneur coming up now where, like, I don't know, there's such a, let's call it, false sense of accomplishment with the Internet and things like that. And people have, yep. you know, for made it before they've done anything. Likes, followers, you know? and comments. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, media you, know. find, you find that those people don't last. No, most of them do not. You're you know, certain You find that, that those people eventually get called out. And that's the thing is, like, there's people that are in the strength game that have 5,000 times more followers than I do. But, you know, the thing of it is, is, you know, I, I built that just out of love. I didn't, I didn't care if, if what I did got me more followers. I didn't care if, you know, what I did was popular or unpopular. I just kept my head down and stayed to my guns and everything grew around that. And I think that's the biggest problem with what we deal with today in marketing. When sure. you start, having marketing talks. I don't, I don't really even personally like talking about marketing because I feel that marketing comes to you when you, when you're ready for it. You know, like I, I post me doing bell squats on warmups because that's what I do. 
and that's my marketing. And if people want to do 100 reps on bell squats like what I do before they go and break a world record in a squat, have at it. You know what I mean? But it's yeah. not just for machines. Right. With, I, that, with that said, though, is that you are efficient with letting people know what you are doing. You know, there, I, think there, I think sometimes there's people that are stubborn. They're like, ah, screw it. Like, I'm not going to do this at all. I don't want anybody knowing what we're doing. I think you've done a really good job of – you know, having a having almost a glass door into mm. how you're training people, why you train people the way you do, and and you want to yeah. get people the knowledge to help yeah, better. You, themselves. you put out a lot of quality content for sure. Well, you know, the thing of it is, is what I realized, and you know, I talked with Charles about this a lot because, you know, you're always hesitant about well, how how do you give away what you bled for, and you know what he told me? He's like, you know what, man? He goes, remember this. He goes, especially in the exercise science field and the training and performance field. The hard part's not knowing it. The hard part's doing it. Sure. You know, and that's the thing is I think people, I, I have no problem showing everybody what I do because that ain't the work. <laughs> you know, if you want to be like me, then you better put your hoodie on and go 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Injury free. At that. So, so when you opened up your gym, now, you, you know, first thing, were, were, you, were you nervous? Was there like a point where you were like, man, I hope this works out. I'm going to spend all this money on equipment and gym and things <laughs> like that. You know, yeah, that's that's a funny story because I mean, I people don't realize this, but you know, from my dad dying and my mom's always had a good job, but she was raising three kids on her own, and I didn't realize this until I got older. We were fucking broke, and yeah. when I came over out of grad school, I had I was making five hundred dollars a month on my stipend in grad school. Oh, now I didn't have a school bill, but I did I didn't make any money. I mean, I was broke as shit coming out of school. And one of the guys I used to weld for on the in the summers to make money for school gave me a check for I think a thousand or twelve hundred dollars when I moved over to Ohio, and that's all I had in my bank account. Jesus, I mean it was sink or swim. And uh, when I got over there, got over here where I live now, um, it that was the most stressful time in my life. I mean I worked at a regular gym, a bullshit Lifetime Fitness, just to get the right hours so I could train because I didn't care. All I cared about, if I had enough money for a small apartment, put gas in my car to make it and train, that's what I was going to do. I knew everything was going to fall into place if I could just stay legit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, so I started off with that and uh, built myself up to what I have now. And I think the problem is, is that I just the money, the money issue wasn't a problem ever as long as I could put gas in my car until I knew that. Um, everything was going to fall into place. I don't, I don't know how I knew. Like, I yeah. just knew it was going to work that way. I just didn't, I just, I knew that if I just kept my head down and kept busting my ass, I was going to get where I needed to be. Um, you know, I think the hardest part about doing what you have a passion for is you got to be willing to hit all these speed bumps. And, and, and not, not that you don't care about hitting those speed bumps, but you don't let them get in the way. Sure, you just keep moving. You know? I mean, it was a big blow to me when I left Louis, and me and Louis just didn't get along anymore. And, uh, you know, because it's all I knew. Like, yeah, I sure, sure. I was dealing with a guy that I had known since 99. This was 2007. And it was just kind of like, well, I'm in another town I didn't grow up in all by myself. Yeah, yeah. You big, know, and big, that, was, that, was a, yeah, that was a weird situation right. at that time. But it was the best thing that could have happened to me because it, it pulled my foot out of my ass and started making me realize that I had to worry about me, you right. know. I remember, and, uh, I remember being out there. We were there in, what, 2010. 
Yeah, right. yeah. 2010. 2010 we, we were there for about five days, and I remember saying to Joe, looking around, be like, man, like, we're there on vacation. Like, we're making a lifting pilgrimage. We want to go out and see, what, <laughs> see you guys training and, you know, throw, oh, yeah. throw down the best, best that we can. I remember looking around. We're there all day. I'm like, man, yep. like, what, what is everybody, how does everybody eat around here? Like, are these, are these power lifters really making that much money? Like, what's going on? How are people surviving? And, um, you know, you obviously make light of that, saying when you had to leave, it, it was kind of time to, to get on your own and, and really start making a, something of yourself yeah. financially. Well, and that was the hard part, you know. I mean, the hard part was is I was, in a, I was in an environment where I had a master's degree and I had a future, and I was surrounded by a lot of people that weren't going anywhere. Yeah. You know, and that was, and I'm not saying they weren't good lifters or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there was a lot of, there was a lot of shit that there was just, you know. You had bigger dreams and bigger, bigger yeah, thoughts man, for yourself. I had, I, you know, weightlifting was huge for me, but it was a way, I knew that the way for me to be successful and for me to make my mark was to take high level lifting and get average people to be able to utilize it safer and better to where um, we were making strength progress with people that you know, maybe didn't have admirations of being world records, but could reduce injury and make people live a better life, you know? So that's, that's awesome. And now, yeah. so what, what is the future for winning strength, Matt? Like, what do you, what do you have on the horizon? Do you have new equipment coming out? You have any plans for the gym? Now I saw on your website that you do have some people coaching there at your gym also with you. Mm. And so talk yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah. So, well, the coaches we have now at the gym are one guy, uh, Teddy, He's been he's been my intern for about five years. That's how we do internships. <laughs> we do we <laughs> do twelve weeks. In, yeah. <laughs> um, but I forced him. I said, "Look, dude, when you get out of college, you're gonna have to get your master's immediately because there's no way you're gonna be able to help me with these fire departments or these other things. I'm not gonna be able to insure you unless you have these kind of degrees." So he did what I told him, and he got mm-hmm. his master's and and all that jazz. But yeah, I got people that help me or deal with clients that I just. To be completely honest with you, the clients I just don't have patience for anymore. Like, <laughs> I don't like taking on clients that just want to lose weight. Right, sure. Like, I like dealing with people that have big goals, big admirations. And But the problem is I started realizing I was losing a lot of business. So I had a lady that I've been training named Jennifer. She came to me the most out-of-shape, weakest person you have ever seen. 300 pounds. No, I couldn't stand off of a box with a bar, let alone her body. I mean, just, just absolutely in the gutter. And I transformed her in the next two years down to 170 pounds and pretty, pretty damn strong Mm. for not being an athlete or anything of that nature. And she, that sparked a huge interest in her and helping other people in her, her particular, uh, uh, predicament. And what we started to do was I started to teach her how I did it to her, Mm. how I got her to lose that weight how to deal with these ups and downs of diet and these things like that to where she's dealing with clients at times and needs, i.e. weight loss at a pretty severe level that I just don't want to mess with. Sure, sure, sure. But I also want it to be done right. And I know the only way to do that is to do it my way. But, you know, eventually you just run out of patience and time to deal with. I don't want people to come up to me and go, man, well, I fucked up on my diet yesterday. You know, (laughs) I I don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course, of course. People that have more patience than me, um, we're starting to work on developing a it's called the M Foundation. And what we're going to do is work with kids that are autistic and also other types of uh, disabilities that I feel like around town that um, have been done maybe at a therapy level, but never a strength conditioning level. Sure. 
Well, the kids are so not getting I, like a, like in a sense, those kids, a lot of those kids don't even get to go to PE and stuff like that. Yeah. So. And I started to figure out that, you know, this wasn't, and like I said, like everything else in my life, it wasn't a business move. It was a, it was a niche move that I felt like I had a couple of kids that I've trained over the last 10 years that have had autism or any kinds of forms of disability and seeing these drastic results where these other therapists have said, well, this is probably as good as it's going to get, or you're just going to have to deal with having these disabilities or these ailments. And I'm like, no, that's the biggest problem is they're taught that they have ailments and then they fall into them. Let's train them like they're normal and see how close to normal we can get them. Sure. So once I started doing that, we started seeing massive results and changes. And I'm like, we need to do this at a mass level. So that's kind of what we're working on right now is I want to create at least a couple hours a week in the gym where we're going to be working with kids that have those kind of issues since we have the degrees in order to um, take on those kind of jobs. Um, the That's online awesome. stuff just keeps growing. The train, the, uh, the equipment lines just keep growing. And there's a lot of great equipment makers out there now. Sure. Um, sure. I mean, awesome. You know, Sornex elite makes great stuff from William strength, yep. those things. So there's other equipments, but, um, you know, I, I, I just feel that there is a need for a business that makes equipment that actually uses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, your stuff you know, I think awesome. there's a big separation. I'm not a third-party vendor. The stuff I make, I have made myself. That's awesome. Or at least made the original prototype. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of equipment makers have really lost grasp. They're letting engineers and people that don't lift design things, which creates a problem. Sure, sure. Mechanically, it might not be exactly right. what you want it to be sure exactly so that's kind of been started to become the niche and then obviously just having the outreach of the online training i think we probably do the best job in the industry of taking people's um lifts breaking them down on video assessing each lift and then their equipment and then figuring out how to design the best workout based on time constraints stress factors um biomechanics and then make the program fit the person not make the person fit the program. Man, I want it makes me want to get a program. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> when we're done with the podcast, yeah. I'm going to have to set up my own assessment. How do you yeah, limit I mean, that? You know, like I said, I've seen I've seen so many people and I don't know names, I don't even ask, but people that come to us and go, "Why didn't I find you sooner for these online coaching?" because <laughs> I've gotten online coaching from other places and we basically just got fed a cookie cutter workout and never any feedback. Yeah. Mm. How do you limit it? Like how do you ensure that you're getting people the the type of quality and not that cookie cutter, you know, BS approach? Because the two people that write it have master's degrees and those are our that's my and Teddy's job. So Friday, my day off at the gym is spent from eight in the morning till three or four at night, making sure that everyone is assessed and everyone's next week of training is dialed into the T just like they would be a client here. Right. Now what will happen is once I get to the point that I'm so busy and exhausted, which is getting close to where it's filling two people. I mean, we're basically, if we did, I could probably do that full time if I wanted to. And, but I don't because I like the hands-on portion too. I'm one of those guys that I have to have my hands in a little bit of everything because I'm the same way. Sure. You know, so, um, when that gets too busy, then obviously, like anything else, the price is just going to go up. <laughs> That's it, man. So, what do you charge for something like that now, Matt? Like, how do you? How we do charge. You... We charge. We charge six hundred dollars for every twelve weeks. Um, okay. The first, the first usually, uh, the first thing we do is we do the full assessment, mm-hmm. make sure that the body, biomechanically, what's going on, where are the weaknesses, 
the hard part with writing the program is I can see weaknesses like with my eyes closed, but, Mm -hmm. and figure those out, which is pretty easy for me because I've done it so long. The hard part is how do you get, um, the workout design in a conjugate training style Mm -hmm. with limited equipment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the problem is that if somebody's coming to you for online coach, well, I don't have bands. Well, I don't have chains. Well, I don't have these specialty bars. That gets to be where outside of the box thought process is very difficult. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I find if people have most of what I have at my gym, I can write the workout with my eyes closed. And what about but like what about when like in your assessment? If you send somebody for assessment, do you have like a set of movements that you have them film and send to you? Is that how that Usually, works? you know, you know what I, you know what I always tell people is max effort never lies. Yeah, sure. If you take somebody and put them up to ninety percent on bench, they're gonna screw up everything you want to see. Yep. You know, I and even the hard part with me is like I watch my lifts. I literally watch my lifts on a weekly basis. Half the reason that I post shit on Instagram is to not only obviously entertain and get people to go, wow, that's crazy, but most of the ninety five percent of the reason is because I am analyzing my own video. Hmm. I'm watching for my weaknesses, watching for what I think I need, and then restructuring my tra- training damn near on a weekly process, you know? I and mean, that's where I think people think that when you can write a workout, I mean, it's just good for 12 weeks and and this and that. I, that's when you start realizing that how much do they really know? No, of course. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, you know, talking about Louie and meeting him and a lot of other coaches, like even ourselves, when we coach our athletes, I mean, we have a template, but it's every week there's adjustments that have to be made based on what you see yeah. the prior week and stuff like that. You can't just yeah. – you cannot give somebody a 12- to 6-week program and just be like, here you go, you know, yeah. start, it, start it from point A and finish at point B, and that's it, you're done, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to fit long-term because you never – I mean, no, and everything that's why changes. No, that's why, I, you know, like I said, I don't mean to pull – business away from other people and friends but you can't write you can't write a training book like my powerlifting manual is meant to teach you how to think mm-hmm. it's not meant to copy the damn workout sure sure it's meant to go look this is why teach i principles. think this at point a this is why i think this at point b this is why i designed this around this and per and that's exactly how the book's written but you watch a lot of these manuals and they're written like you can just take the workout out of the thing and use it that's awesome. And you can't do that because everybody is structurally different. Everybody has a different background. Athletically, they can recover from different amounts. Now, what about yourself, Matt? Now, I know, you, I mean, obviously, you're you're the coach and you're writing the programs and stuff like that. But have you ever turned to other people for coaching? And have you ever, you know, you, you obviously have this huge base of, of, of influence around you. Um, you know, has has that helped you, or have you ever turned to a, another coach like Charles Polk? When I know Charles is, you know, a master coach and has worked with a lot of top level people. Uh, have you ever had any coaching from other other coaches yourself? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I, I have to answer honestly, and the answer is no. Um, and the reason is because I feel like after 25 years, if I don't know myself, I can't know others. Sure. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. I just my my point is I am. I am more in depth with what I know in my training than I have ever seen anyone else. And maybe there's other people that are, are smarter than me and mm-hmm. I don't know it. But the point is, is like, I'm so in tune with what I need. I don't think anybody else can see. And, you know, Alexiev used to talk about that all the time. Sure. You know, he used to talk constantly about he didn't get a lot of help from a lot of the Russian coaches because he felt like he had to know what he needed because his my problems have become so microscopic that it's hard for anyone to 
to derive a coaching progress off of it. You know what I mean? Right. Like if you watch my squat, you could be like, I don't see anything wrong. There are always errors. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the errors become so minute and so small that they're so hard to see that they almost have to be felt. Yeah, sure. I, I, I get that 100% for certain. For certain. But I will tell you this. I reach out constantly. I send I send Stan pictures weekly. Uh, Mike, I send Mike pictures occasionally when he doesn't send me super gay stuff back. <laughs> you know? yeah, pictures of him but, posing in his, in, his, in his underwear and stuff, you know? Yeah, you, well, that's... Yeah, that's oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, uh, you know... He's I, awesome. For me now, I feel like my... My biggest shortcoming, and it's becoming more of a strength, but it's still a shortcoming, is the diet and learning how to adjust nutrients to get what you want, not only performance-wise, but aesthetic-wise. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I'm really mastering before I'm just too old to, to really push my body to the limit, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and understand that. Because I really enjoy, especially when you can get people that are disciplined enough to do what you tell them, I really enjoy seeing results because I think – the thing of it is, is like with average people, if you can get somebody to look 20% better than they look now in like 15 weeks, yeah, sure. you're worth your weight in gold. Absolutely. Especially if you can do it healthy. Not Absolutely. doing like extreme stupid shit, but like actually do it right, you know? You know, and I, I mean, uh, you know, speaking for myself, but, I, you know, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but being a competitive athlete, always having this chase and drive for strength, and then obviously being a strength and conditioning coach and an expert in exercise science, biomechanics, it's like, you know, you're almost like a mad scientist, and, you know, yeah. doing the doing the nutrition and being able to play with those numbers too. Now it's like another variable that you get to, you know, it's, it's like adding a whole nother, you know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. s- segment lab table to your, to your experiment. And it's like something yep. else that you get to do. So, and I definitely, I definitely feel that myself. I feel like my nutrition and a lot of guys, you know, our age who are, you know, uh, getting a little bit older in years, it's like, well, let, let yep. me, let me dial this in. It's like uh, every guy I've talked to, man, if I would have started doing this 20 years ago, damn it you know but but it's but it's but it's it is the next level and you know at the end of the day we all lift weights and everybody wants to look jacked and but you know the thing of it is is that if you're not always doing that then that means you stop learning of course a hundred percent you know shit i wouldn't have been ready for the shit that i know now at 20 no that's i i guess i guess that is the ultimate lesson is that you know wisdom is what it is and that's why they say hindsight is 2020 uh matt if anybody yeah, I mean, if anybody really truly wants to know how to train, I don't think it'll ever be possible because by the time you get a grasp on everything that you need to know, you're going to be out of your prime. So the only way you would ever know everything is if you could stay in your prime for 50, 75 years. Yeah, that's for certain. And unfortunately, that is that is not possible. So, yeah, Matt, it was really awesome talking to you. I got a tremendous amount of insight, and, uh, and, and I think the listeners for the Business of Strength podcast have got a great – uh, background insight into your mindset, what it took to you know become a champion powerlifter, and that same mindset that you carry over to your business every day is just fantastic. Can, uh, tell me a little, just tell everybody where they can get in contact you with you and some of your outlets. Yeah, so um, you can go on winningstrength.com, and that's my website where you can get a hold of equipment, online workouts, that things of that nature. Um, uh, articles and podcasts you can go to winning strength on youtube and you can see all of our podcasts with uh recently michael hearn daniel and bailey of mm. uh, all those places um you can also get information off the gym of the gym on the website 
Um, let's see. I'm at Real Matt Winning on uh, uh, Instagram. I'm not sure if there's fake ones out there, but uh, <laughs> but, but you're the real there. one. Yeah, the Facebook has my Facebook. Matt Winning has a community page, but my private page is full. Um, but uh, you can go on the community page, and we do quite a bit of posting. Or I actually personally do a lot of posting on there and then uh obviously we have seminars that we post um uh probably i would say we run about a seminar probably five times a year so every other month we usually have a seminar of some type uh at the gym and then um i'm do always doing seminars all around town i know are you guys fairly close to bethlehem pa uh not too far about an, about, an, about an, yeah about an hour yeah. and a half two hours so yeah. i'm doing a seminar over there uh june 23rd i believe Oh, okay. Um, so that'll be the next traveled seminar, and then doing one in South Bend, uh, Indiana, close to Chicago, uh, in September. So, oh, I'd love um, to. I'd love we, to maybe come out there and connect with you in person. It'd be great to meet. Yeah, man. Yeah, anytime. I mean, I'm. I'm hopefully hopefully stay out there for maybe an extra day and then hang out. So, uh, yeah. Are you gonna bring the Harley up for that? Hit, one hit the Sands Casino. Yeah. Man, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Man, I'll tell you what though. When I get done with this ride, I'm getting ready to leave. The April fifteenth, so my bike's in L.A. and I'm going to ride it from L.A. all the way to South Carolina and back home. Wow, um, which is a haul. But usually, when I get done with that ride, I'm about sick of that bike. <laughs> <laughs> the new one looks my sick, man. I've been following it. So destroyed, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's all now. You do that with a bunch of buddies, or you just do it? Uh, actually, I, I mostly do those solo. Um, wow. You know, I work around a lot of people, and that's the time for me to just kind of clear my mind and kind of let my body have a little break and my joints have a little break from training, which I don't know how much a break on my joints is riding 4,000 miles <laughs> on my back. <laughs> oh my God. But it's <laughs> one of those mental breaks that I need when I get back. I just feel fresh and that's uh, awesome. rejuvenated. And uh, so I got one more of those big, long rides. I'm going to cover all the southern states this year, and the next year I'm going to ride from Alaska back home. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, that's going to be a haul. And then the, I think the long rides are pretty much behind me. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Keep it riding yeah. around, putting around town on the Harley. Yeah, so those nice. are the big outlets, you know. Great. Um, but, yeah, I mean, anybody needs to get a hold of me for anything, just let me know. Great. Awesome, cool. Matt. Thank you thanks so much, lot, Matt. Matt. We really, really appreciate, appreciate it. It was great talking to you. Yeah, not and, a problem. Uh, thanks for coming on. The business of strength powered by Varsity House Gym. Turn your passion into your profession and learn how to run a world-class business. Be sure to visit us at www.strengthentrepreneurs.com to learn more. And as always, at varsityhousegym.com. Become unstoppable.